Hello and welcome to Plotris. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're going to be talking about The Duke is Mine by Eloisa James. So this is one of the books in her fairy tale series. Yeah, and we it's the second one in the series that we reviewed. We have not reviewed them in order, mostly because these books are all standalone. So they all have as their inspiration some kind of fairy tale, but that's really all they have in common. So no characters appear in other books, no settings, nothing like that. Yeah, like there's not, not even like a passing reference to a ball at someone's house. It's totally independent. Yeah, so you're, if you want to start with this one, if this sounds great and any of the others we review don't sound so good, totally start with this one. No need to get an idea of the other characters. Agreed. All right, so let's just dive right in with the book jacket. Okay. Sorry. He is a duke in search of a perfect bride. She is a lady, but a long way from perfect. Tarquin, the powerful Duke of Sconce, knows perfectly well that the decorous and fashionably slender Georgiana Lytton will make him a proper duchess. So why can't he stop thinking about her twin sister, the curvy, headstrong, and altogether unconventional Olivia? Not only is Olivia betrothed to another man, but their improper, albeit intoxicating, flirtation makes her unsuitability all the more clear. Determined to make a perfect match, he methodically cuts Olivia from his thoughts, allowing logic and duty to triumph over passion. Until in his darkest hour, Quinn begins to question whether perfection has anything to do with love. To win Olivia's hand, he would have to give up all the beliefs he holds most dear and surrender heart, body, and soul until it's already too late. Yeah, so... This book jacket really doesn't talk about what happens in the book at all. No, it it's, and the conflict it presents isn't even really the conflict. No, not, yeah. I mean, this book is kind of a strange book. Like the, I think they're, they set up one conflict and then it suddenly changes to another one. Right. But so, even so, neither of those conflicts are, are really mentioned in the book jacket. Right. So basically, Cliff Notes version, because I don't think our short summaries will cover what actually happened. <laughs> Georgiana and Olivia's parents, their father was friends with a duke in school. And yeah. the two men, when they were boys, pledged to each other that their firstborns would marry. Yeah. And most likely this never would have come to fruition, except that the duke's son is born with some kind of um, mental impairment. And so he wouldn't be able to find a, a bride, basically. And so he's the Duke essentially is willing to hold up his end of the bargain as long as Olivia, as the older twin, is willing to go through with it. Yeah, so exactly. girls have been raised to be duchesses because they put them in all of their education and whatnot together, but only Olivia is planning to marry a Duke. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, how did they get this education to be a duchess? Well... The Duke of Sconce, Tarquin or Quinn's mother, wrote a book about the perfect duchess. And uh, Olivia and Georgiana's mother has been raising them by using the principles in this book. Right. And so Quinn's mother decides that he needs to find a wife. And so she solicits the opinion of her nearest and dearest for eligible bachelors. And Olivia's future father-in-law puts forth Georgiana's name. So both twins end up going to the Duke of Sconce's house, essentially for Georgiana to compete in the marriage games. 
Yeah, but of course, who wins? It's Olivia in the end because the Duke doesn't want a perfect bride. He wants, you know, a charmingly imperfect one who's, who's very funny. It's very funny. However, we didn't just spoil the end of the book for you because this happens about halfway through. Yes, indeed. We did not spoil the end because then there's a there's a turn that gets taken and all of a sudden they have to go adventuring into the wilds of northern France. during. The, so this, of course, is during the French Revolution and the, the wars that come after. And um, so they've got to go. They've got to go rescue somebody in in France. Um, and they go together. So Quinn and Olivia go together to rescue this person. Which, so hopefully you can now understand why that book jacket does not cover the book. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see, let's see how our summaries cover it. So okay. this week, our random number was 28. So we can go ahead and start, Lane. All right. Well-behaved women rarely incite passion from repressed dukes. Erectile dysfunction, a catty mother-in-law, war, war envy, and France all play a role in this fairy tale. Yeah, so although shorter, I do think it covers more of what happens in the book than the book jacket. <laughs> yeah, weird how that works. Yeah. All right, so here's mine. The princess in the pea in Regency England, he's trying to find the perfect duchess. His mother has the perfect criteria to use. Will she feel the pea? Yep, so. pretty much. Yeah, I guess I tried to, I went a little more fairy tale on it. <laughs> also, so the princess and the pea bit becomes a lot more relevant in the second half of the book. Yeah, so the first half of the book, it's more metaphorical. So the mother is, is you know, imposing these bizarre criteria on who the perfect duchess is. Um, and then in the second half, it becomes more literal. So she actually is on like a huge bed of mattresses and, and has to feel something underneath of it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. This sounds like I'm faking it. This like actually happens in the book. Yeah, no, it's very literal. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I talking about it that way, I kind of enjoy like the the figurative part of the fairy tale plus like the literal interpretation of the fairy tale all wrapped up together. So I think I feel like I'm I feel like I'm appreciating the book a little bit more talking about it like this. You know what I, I mean? I just wish the two halves of the book had seemed a little bit more integrated. Yeah, I agree. He especially, Quinn, seems like an entirely different character. Well, and I think, so, uh, I think she had a really tough time with Quinn. So Quinn is, the way he's written, he is obviously supposed to be on the autism spectrum somewhere. I didn't pick up on this. Okay, so this, I thought so, because he he's, he's brilliant, he's this brilliant scientist, he doesn't understand how other people work. He doesn't understand emotions. He, in fact, has a big problem with his own strong emotions. So the book is partially him trying to learn to deal with those emotions in the, in the right way. Uh, and then what Olivia does is she, uh, she somehow, of course, immediately understands him and then she's able to kind of reinterpret his emotions. Like, uh, for example, this there's a scene with his mother where she... Um, correctly interprets his mother's ultimatum as as originating from concern for him uh, that he doesn't see at all. And so she's able to sort of mitigate the situation. Yeah, and I get that. I just didn't read him as any different from the thousand other romantic heroes with a traumatic backstory who become a little bit a nerd to, like, human frailty. Right. I mean, to... 
I, I thought she was trying to put him on the spectrum and that it didn't work, which to me it shows up in the way you're like, well, I really didn't, I didn't even notice it, you know? Right. And so like, like, I'm not saying she didn't, I'm saying if she did big fail. Yeah, no. And I, I agree 100% that this was, he did not end up seeming like he was on the spectrum. He seemed like a little bit clueless, which let's be honest, in a lot of these romance novels, that's how the men are with their emotions, right? Right. And especially ones with dead wives and children. Oh, yes. Dead wives. Yes. So these disappear. So let's talk about some tropes. That's a trope. He's got a nice, tragic backstory. His wife died. His child died. And how did they die? on a in a shipwreck while she was leaving him for another man so quite a quite a tragic backstory quite a tragic backstory and And i mean this this also i guess has an effect i think it sort of she's trying to humanize his mother a little bit because his mother is this extremely strict very rude like very mean woman but I think she's trying to humanize her by saying, well, she was also affected by this trauma. And she feels like the reason it happened was because the first woman he married was completely unsuitable to be a duchess. And so to to try to protect her son, that's why she's trying to find a perfect woman. And his first wife was too hot-tempered and passionate and, you know, uh, flighty and improper. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. she wants to find him a paragon of virtue. Exactly. And I mean, let's be fair. He, his wife, they, you know, got to, they got together when he was very young and she was very young, I think like 17 and 19. Yeah. Um, and then like immediately after having a child, his wife just started cheating on him with other people. So, right. you know, I mean, she wasn't, didn't seem like a great person. No, but I mean, it presents this interesting to talk about another trope. You've got a pair of twins that it, are complete opposites of one another. Mm-hmm. So Georgiana is has a body that is in fashion, is life and slender and polite, and she's excellent at saying the right thing at the right time and not imposing, and she's just always appropriate. Mm-hmm. And Olivia, by contrast, is equally intelligent and sharp, but has kind of never had to play the part of the lady because she's oh, right. she's going to be one regardless in a way. And she exactly. also have the temperament to suppress any of that. Oh, and of course she's, she's fat. I mean, is she really fat? She's voluptuous. Right. It's but. one of those things where they try to present it as like her body is so unfashionable, but you're like, but she'd be a pinup. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it is what it is. Like I, I get, uh, it's it's this is a little bit of the you don't know you're beautiful trope you know like she's she's very um self-conscious about her body um but she also doesn't do anything about it like she says if if it means i can't eat anything anymore that i'm not like too bad you know what i mean right um but then it her body and her body image play a big part in like the sex scenes for example Yup. <laughs> and then, of course, she learns to love her body because Quinn says it's beautiful and blah, 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 you know, whatever. And, of course, he's only interested in a woman with curves and doesn't understand the appeal of these lithe, 
fashionable bodies. Right, of course, which, you know, I, like there are guys out there like that, sure, but I, I do feel like these books, and I'm not calling out Eloisa James in particular here because this is all over media. It's, you know, mm -hmm. either real women have curves or it's um, real women are skinny. You know, right. it's, it's like you can't, either way you do it, you're putting down some kind of woman. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's it, it just doesn't, it's presented primarily as a contrast between the two sisters, but I was really tired about reading about her body. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't hate it, I think, as much as Lane did, but I definitely did not like the whole, uh, you know, she's, she's fat, but she's not real. She's fat, but in an attractive way, you know, like she, let's be honest, she's not like obese. She's not a huge fat lady. You know what I mean? Right, and not that there would be anything wrong with that, but they're clearly not subverting any beauty norms with this. No, but exactly, that's what I'm saying, you know, and if 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 I read a book where she's, like, super fat and the guy is into it, you know what, bring it on. I would love to read that, but I never will because that will not be written. Right. So, okay, so I think we talked about her weight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably. Didn't, I didn't really plan on going on that tirade, but there you go. Yeah, I, you know, I wasn't planning on it, but yeah, it, I guess it was buried deep in my heart. So yeah. I had to, came so out. Talked about the trope of the evil mother-in-law, which ends up being subverted because Olivia understands that even her aggressive and negative behavior is driven by concern for her son. Yeah. And then at the, at the end, at the, in the epilogue, in fact, the mother-in-law um, says, oh, I'm, you know, I'm really happy that he ended up with Olivia instead. Like I, I was obviously applying the wrong criteria to the search for a duchess. So um, I, I like, I, I will say I liked that because there are many times when the mother or the mother-in-law is like this evil person who has to be overcome. And here it, it wasn't, it didn't end up that way. Right. That um, how nice. did you feel about the book's handling of her impaired Beyonce? I mean, this is a really great question. I, I was not, I was not offended by it, but I, I don't know if I should have been, you know, like we don't. So basically what happened with her fiance is when he was born, uh, his mother, it was a very difficult birth. His mother was in distress. And I, I think it's implied that he was uh, without oxygen for a while. And so he, he just grew up not, not being all there, you know, this poor, this poor, this poor child. And then the mother, in fact, was also, um, affected by it and she's never been out in society again like she's now an invalid as well right because of what happened but um but I will say I thought so in the beginning I thought it was played a little bit for laughs and I was a little bit like mm, where's she going with this you know because you know Olivia Olivia is I I think portrayed as being this very honorable very nice person because basically because yeah she's got to marry this guy who has some kind of mental impairment but she's putting up with it and she won't let anyone else speak poorly of him right so it's presented more as uh as this is olivia's cross to bear than anything about him than humanizing him the fiance well and he's presented as like kind and well-intentioned and like he just slow and incapable of sort of performing the tasks that are expected of a duke. Right. Um, but, yeah. So I will say later in the book as well, he does, I think he sort of rehabilitated a little bit. So he does appear back on, on the page and um, is treated as this, 
um, this great tragedy and who was able to connect with like the common man. Right. Uh, even though he, if he wouldn't necessarily have made it in the aristocracy, you know? Right. Um, so I think that was, I, I'm ambivalent. I, I will say I'm ambivalent. How, how did you feel about it? I think similarly, I, it was definitely, I can't say it's a trope. I've never seen it before. Um, no. And there were parts of it where she's concerned, and I'll talk about this in a minute, that I, I like, I really liked her attitude towards sex and specifically sex with him. Mm-hmm. Because she's basically told he's going to go off to war and it might be in her best interest to consummate the relationship before he leaves. Yeah. And the people, his father and her parents are telling her this. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they basically say, like, go, here you go. Here's the parlor. Enjoy yourselves, kids. And she's very kind to him and they do their best to follow through, but he's not really able Mm-hmm. Um, and so she decides to cover for him and she's like, I will absolutely tell everyone we did. Mm-hmm. Like every like I'm on your side, everything's fine. And so I think she treats him well, but I also I, I think it's exactly what you said. I don't think it's played for laughs, except sometimes it is. I mean it is. There are times when it is, and those are the times where I'm like, Ugh. Yeah. So, so yeah. It just just a it, it was a strange detail to have regularly occurring in the middle of this sexy princess and the P interpretation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, like he could have been, they could have done it a lot of different ways. Like he's gay, he's um, mean, he is already in love with someone else. I don't know. They could have done a lot of different things, but they went with mental impairment. So, Yeah. Or in, I guess intellectual disability. I, I'm going to be honest. I also am not like up on the terms that I should be using. But um, person first language is the most important thing. Like not talking about somebody as an invalid, but instead saying a person with impairment. Yeah, yeah. So, but in, in any case, um, I mean, there are. Uh, uh, the, let's. So Georgette Hare's um, cotillion comes to mind. There's a character in there that's similar to him who obviously is not going to make it as a, um, as an Earl, but, um, and that also is played for laughs, but also very sympathetically. So I'm wondering if she was maybe inspired by that. I mean, that book is considered like a a classic of uh, Regency romance. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I I really don't know. It might've been, it might not have been, um, I, I don't know. On the other oh, hand, in that book, she also, she ends up, she, so she doesn't end up with the guy who's like severely has, has some kind of se- severe mental incapacity. Um, but she also doesn't end up with the, the sharpest knife in the block either, which, which is really, I mean, it's a really fun book. So maybe we should do that one sometime. Okay. But anyway, so we're not talking about Cotillion. <laughs> um, let's, oh, let's really briefly talk about Georgiana. Okay. Because, um, so Georgiana is, so he's, she is the sister. She's the one who's always acted with propriety. Um, but she also is feeling, I guess, trapped by her role because she wants to be an intellectual. Like she loves to read science books and science treatises. Like she would love to go to Oxford or Cambridge, but she can't because she's a woman. Right. And so she is initially attracted to marriage with Quinn because he is also uh, extremely intellectual and they can talk about like science stuff together, right? 
Right. Uh, but later when they talk about like a physical relationship, she's like, oh no, that, that doesn't sound great. So I was one, this is not explicitly anywhere in the text. This is just me wondering, like, was, do you think she was supposed to be like asexual or something? I don't know. I saw that in your notes and I, like, I hadn't thought of it while I was reading the text. I wonder to me, her reluctance to get involved with Quinn more physically read as she was picking up on the vibes between her sister and Quinn. Yeah. I mean, I think that was definitely part of it. But then I also wonder if, anyway, I, I don't know. I didn't know. Because in the end, she's not. So in the epilogue, you know, most of the time, they the authors will wrap everything up and have the happy ending for everyone. And her happy ending is not that she's married to somebody. Like, even if he was like, let's say, an Oxford Don or something. Um, but she's, I mean, you don't know if she's married or not. She's just is Aunt Georgiana in the end. Right. Uh, and so... I know this is, I know I'm like totally grasping at straws here, but I, I was definitely possible. Didn't yeah. cross my mind. Okay. All right. Um, all right. So we did that. Let's see. How sexy was this to you? Um, so I, I'll say I liked their initial hookup. So their initial hookup is in a treehouse. And um, in general, I liked it because I thought I thought it was fun how she was trying to make their show their characters through the sex scene. So it wasn't just like a this sexy like now they have sex and it's sort of outside of character development and plot. So I thought it was it was it was she was trying to use it as character development. That said, I don't think that that made it sexier. Does that make sense? Yeah, I actually, every single, like, kiss and sex scene in this one was too weighed down by trauma and insecurity for me. Mm, yeah. Like, with the exception of the first kiss, when she, like, runs into his house from the rain telling him to go rescue his own aunt, and instead he makes out with her. Yeah. a single physical encounter that isn't oh no, but I'm stealing my sister's man. Oh no, but I'm fat. Oh no, but your kid's dead and you've been through so much trauma. It was just really hard for me to read it and be like, yes, this is really sexy when she's like picturing his grief when his son died as yeah. he's putting it in. Yeah, but that's, so I, and I agree with that. So I'm, I'm not saying that, I, I enjoyed them more as a part of the book than as a, a sexy part of the book. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. So like, I didn't think, so, of course, like I said, their initial hookup is in a treehouse, but whose treehouse was it? His dead kids, mm, you know. So that gets brought up. And then um, later, yeah, later, anyway, whatever. She's also, like, all worried about her body and if he's going to like it or not. And then there's the added part where she's basically told everyone that she had sex with her fiancé, but she actually didn't. So... <laughs> That part is in there too. It's like really weird. Some like, I guess, unique aspects to the to the sex scenes in this book. Yeah, it was. You're right. It's more a part of the story than independently sexy. Yeah. So, and there's also the the final hookup is in France after they're they've resolved their conflict there, and they're both like still gasping because they've inhaled tons of smoke and they clearly should be in like the Regency equivalent of a hospital for like a week and instead they go frolic in the fields and have sex in the open air in the field of bluebells 
And I'm just, I mean, that was the closest it came to a sexy sex scene, but it was so unbelievable. Lane couldn't get over the smoke. I was like, you have both almost died of smoke inhalation. <laughs> like, you couldn't take a breath deep enough to, like, exert yourselves to this degree. Yeah, yeah. I just but... don't buy it. Yeah. Which I understand. I understand that this is a romance novel and everything's unbelievable and none of this makes any sense. But here you go. This is what I'm thinking about. Yeah. Um, I, I would say I think this is kind of a, a James, a Louisa James trademark, uh, is that her sex scenes are, they're not just, like, erotic. They are also meant to move the story along and, like, get a deepening awareness of the characters. And, and yes, to some extent, this is the case for all romance novels. But I think in her case, she takes it, she goes deeper, you know? Yeah, definitely. So just to just to throw that out there, I'm not saying that these are because I really like her. I think she writes really well, but um, don't go for it to be like, I want to read a sexy book because I mean, they're they're sexy enough, but they're not. It's not like super sexy. Right. All right. So other than what we've sort of already talked on about with her fiance, how offensiveness was this one for you? Yeah, I didn't find I didn't find it super offensive. I liked the part where Georgiana basically is talking about how um, I don't want to get married. And she's talking about how constrained her choices are mm -hmm. as a woman in, in that era. So I think that was brought up um, in a pretty tasteful way. I liked that. Uh, I would say that Justin's appearance of this, I don't know if it's on the fence or not, but I, I totally didn't get that it was Justin Bieber. Neither did Lane, but it, I had it was Justin Bieber. I had a brief moment where I thought, like, was the name Justin really common in the Regency? It's Lord Justin Lefebvre, which I guess for me to read as Beaver, like Lefebvre. But I didn't read it that way also, so I wasn't pronouncing it the way I guess she wanted us to pronounce it. <laughs> I'm really bad at the, like, Anglicans. Wow, I can't talk right now. Whatever the Britishism, the British equivalent of French words when they yeah. intentionally pronounce them. I was going to say like Anglicanization. I that, that sounds pretty good to me, Lane. So I, I think all right, I'm we'll go with that. that. But like, especially like the name Louis. Yeah. And Louis and Louis and I, I don't know. I, I can never keep up with how the British are pronouncing things. Yeah, but. I mean, I think Justin was would probably have been fine, but she she was like emphasizing, it. and then of course he's he's like young and he like plays the piano forte, and all the young women go gather around him. <laughs> like he's a total dandy in a sexy way, right? Right, but not even like sexy though, because he's like fourteen or fifteen, right? So sexy to the teenage girls, right? Right, right, exactly. So you know, um, I, I guess like um, approachably sexy, you know, like he's safe to have a crush on. Because he would yeah. never do anything about it, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was that was interesting. It, I, I think Meg, you put it best. That didn't really age super well. Yeah, you know, especially if you like, and then maybe that's why I didn't put it together either. Because like this young fifteen-year-old heartthrob at the piano is not how I see Justin Bieber today. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm hmm. But that said, let's see. Okay, so this is. This is me. This is me being offended, but for something that probably no one else is. But the whole part at the end where they have to go rescue someone in France and the way they escape from the garrison reminded me very forcibly of The Scarlet Pimpernel, which is a super fun book. 
And you're, again, if you like the Scarlet Pimpernel, you're going to hate me for saying this. But the whole part at the end, I just feel is like very anti-Semitic. Remember when the, uh, when Sir Percy dresses up as the Jewish tinker? And that does not happen in this book. So there's nothing in this book that is anti-Semitic. But I was so forcibly reminded of it that I, I couldn't put it out of my mind. So I don't know. The heck, it's just an FYI. If you love the Scarlet Pimpernel but don't like the Jewish tinker the way I do, this book might bring up those repressed feelings. Yeah, I think that's definitely a, a you thing, but I'm glad yeah. you mentioned it. <laughs> it's totally not a fair criticism of this book in any way, but it I, I was thinking about it and couldn't stop thinking about it when I read this book. So that's it. We'll have to read Scarlet Pimpernel and see how that goes. We we really should read the Scarlet Pimpernel because uh, it is like the prototypical romance novel, you know? Yeah. And so we should we should we should do it um, sometime. All right. Well, so overall, like, would you recommend this one? Overall, I, I mean, yeah, I would. I think I did. I, I think I said, oh, we should read Eloisa James. And you said, well, which one? And I said, well, I think this one was fun. So I thought it, I think it's fun. It's enjoyable. Um, the writing is, is not terrible. The dialogue is good. I, I feel like her dialogue is always shines. Um, but that, I mean, maybe that's just me. I don't know. What, it, what do you think? I think the most memorable part of this one for me like is gonna be the stuff in France and the dynamic between the sisters and both mm. of those things are memorable in a good way. Right. So I think a lot of this book is gonna ultimately end up in the like fun but forgettable for me, except for those few standout moments. So overall, I think I'd recommend it because I think it does have more positives than negatives. Oh yeah. And even it's like we were, the things we were talking about, so like the emphasis on her weight and then the, the, the way that her fiance's mental condition is treated. Uh, those are like very peripheral. I, they're not peripheral, but they're not like 100% offensive. Like both of us felt relatively ambiguous about it, you know? Yeah, like I'm not willing to go out on a limb and say it was handled poorly. I exactly. was very aware of it. Yes, yeah, exactly. So I, I think it's a, I do think it's a really fun book. Um, and I don't think it's a bad introduction to Eloisa James. I'd agree with that. So thanks for listening, guys. Yeah. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. And we will we'll be back next time with a new uh, novel to review. Thanks for listening. So I think we should probably mention Justin Bieber just really briefly. <laughs> so there is a character named Justin Lefebvre. Lefebvre. I don't know how you Britishize that. I, I have no idea. Lefebvre? I mean, I think she wants you to read it as Lefebvre, but I will say that I didn't, I truly didn't get that it was supposed to be Justin Bieber until I read her authors afterward. I had a little thought that the name Justin seemed a little anachronistic, but yeah. I wasn't sure. Yeah. But I did not put two and two together that this heartthrob to teenage girls was supposed to be Bieber. No, I, I, tr I did not, I didn't get it. I didn't get it at all. This went completely over my head. And honestly, it didn't really age well. Because mm -mm, when no. I think of Bieber now, <laughs> I am not picturing like 15-year-old heartthrob. No, absolutely not. So if you are going to insert a pop star into your work, maybe make sure it's one who will retain relevance. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you, how do you know? I, you would have to insert a pop star from like 20 years ago so you know how they age. <laughs> It couldn't be like a... I, this probably isn't also one. the place where I'm looking for a Bieber reference. I think that's like, I didn't get it.
though. But 